that look of understanding, that kind of dawn that comes over their face. You know, it's the power of art to make people just think about something in a completely different way than what they thought about it five minutes ago. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am talking with Erin Blankenship, who is the curator of exhibitions and collections for the Florida Holocaust Museum in St. Petersburg. When you walk into the door of the Florida Holocaust Museum, what do you see? What's the experience of in the museum itself? From a visitor's perspective, we have our first floor, which is a history of the Holocaust. It's a history exhibition. So on exhibit are artifacts, objects, documents, photographs from the Holocaust and the period just before the Holocaust and just after when people were liberated, living in displaced persons camps and emigrating to the U.S. and other countries. The second floor is a temporary exhibition gallery. The artwork and exhibitions that we bring in on the second floor, they are contemporary responses to the Holocaust and other genocides. And our third floor is where we not only host lectures and have exhibit openings, but we also have educational exhibitions. So the first floor seems to me what most people might imagine when they think of a Holocaust museum. Absolutely. I think that when people come to the museum, that is what they're expecting to see. A history of the Holocaust. Ours is told through the stories of local survivors. So most of our objects are from survivors and their families and witnesses and their families that tell their unique stories, which is, in our opinion, the best way. You know, we believe that people learn one story, one individual at a time. It's a personal experience for each individual visitor. So that's what people expect to see. And the second floor really acts as a place that will hopefully get people to come back. We might continue the discussion, the the dialogue about the Holocaust through other history exhibitions, telling other parts of that Holocaust story, or we might have exhibitions of original artwork. What intrigues me, and, and you gave the reason of why you're doing what you're doing on the second floor for people to come back. Mm-hmm. And that's a great business reason. It does seem to me, though, that you've also hit on a higher a higher purpose and a higher cause. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I felt, you know, as a kid, you know, your parents would drag you to museums, and the one I hated the most was the Natural History Museum. <laughs> because it was always stuff that wasn't speaking to me because it was in the past. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when people go to a Holocaust museum, it can be very, very emotional. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of easy to compartmentalize it and say that's in the past. By bringing in contemporary commentary, which I think is what happens on the second floor, you are connecting it to the present. They are artists, most of whom are living today, who've created works in response to some aspect of that story. And it's personal for them, and it's personal for the viewers. We've seen it in students, you know, a student that doesn't respond, doesn't join in the dialogue during a tour on the first floor with the historic photographs and text and artifacts. They come alive on the second floor in an art exhibition answering questions and offering their opinions. And that's definitely the, the what we want. We want to be able to reach people who learn in all sorts of different ways. Art gives us a way to do that. And, you know, we recognize that power that art has to affect people personally, emotionally, to get people to start talking, to start talking to strangers that are looking at the same piece next to them. 
art has always been a strong focus for our museum. And that's pretty unique, isn't it, for a Holocaust museum? I believe it is. It is not very usual that a museum will have an art exhibition because, again, it's, it's usually history exhibits, which certainly speak to a lot of our visitors. But like I said, it's been a focus. It's been something that we are dedicated to, making sure that people know that artists have an important voice. It's something that from day one, we've collected artwork so that we can have spaces that are reflective and kind of offer a pause for our visitors. Our mission is to honor the memory of the millions of people who perished or suffered during the Holocaust and to teach members of all races and cultures the inherent worth of all human life in order to prevent future genocides. Seems that we seem to need to learn that lesson over and over and over. Over and over. I always see art as transformative and certainly Mm -hmm. I I don't want to sound like I don't recognize the importance of history mm-hmm. and the importance of facing our, our history and facing the devastation and, and, and having knowledge about mm-hmm. what happened. And as people are born and don't even have grandparents anymore who might have lived through that, it's really important that that's available for people. Right. At the same time, I think having art makes that more transformative for people. We have artwork in our collection that Yes, it's artwork, but they sometimes act as testimony because some of the artwork is created by survivors. And then we also have artwork that is maybe more emotional or maybe more abstract that are created by empathizers or members of the second generation. And I think that having all of those different avenues, those different ways in really helps us speak to a wide range of different types of people. And it really is, we believe it's, it is transformative. We've heard it from students and student groups and notes that some of our visitors may leave behind. And whenever we have an exhibition, we talk about the creation of the work itself and the artists certainly consider it transformative. Every few years or so, We have been able to host an exhibition of new work by an artist named Samuel Bach. He's a Holocaust survivor. He was in the Vilna ghetto and been creating artwork since he was three years old in the ghetto, had his first art exhibit in the ghetto. His work is very metaphorical. Some would say it may be surrealist, although he would not consider himself a surrealist. And it offers so many ways into the subject of the Holocaust. There was one student, you know, they all go through the first floor. He was a deadpan look on his face through the whole first floor. On the second floor, this was a student that lit up and I think learned a lot from his visit to the museum based on the art exhibition and not on the first floor, which was the thing that they actually came to see. Let's talk a little bit about your permanent collection. Is is it mostly paintings? The artwork that's in our collection consists of all different mediums. We have ceramic work, paintings, drawings, other types of sculpture, collage, photography. It really runs the gamut. And I think that just comes from the fact that all these artists that are represented in our collection come from a multitude of different backgrounds and experiences. and are talking about a range of different ideas. 
and subjects. You know, not only the Holocaust, but we have work that's focused on other genocides like the Rwandan genocide or some civil rights focused works. It all falls under the umbrella of our mission, you know, where we want to talk about these crimes against humanity and also get people to think about their fellow human as a way of combating hatred and intolerance. We've had some exhibitions that are installations. There's one where there were ears, <laughs> Richard Notkin, a ceramic artist, and one of his works called Legacy is an installation of a pile of stoneware ears. They look like rocks. Mm-hmm or ears made from rocks, of all different sizes and shapes and colors and textures. This was something he created in response to the Holocaust, and then went on to speak about it in reference to other atrocities. And when we explained that to a group of visitors, uh, I mean, they were just that look of understanding, that, that kind of dawn that comes over their face. You know, it's the power of art to to make people just think about something in a completely different way than, you know, what they thought about it five minutes ago on the first floor. What's interesting to me is that our museum gives context to whatever is in our space. Anything that is in our museum automatically gets that context, whether an artist would want it or not. If you have something like that, a pile of something, one might automatically think of piles of bodies that they saw from those liberation photos that came out right after the war. We have another artist named Debbie Techoltz, who was a photographer and took pictures of railroad tracks, not at any of these sites, not at any of these Holocaust concentration camps, and also took pictures of piles of wood, also not at any of these places, but being in our space, one automatically Mm -hmm. brings back all of those histories Mm -hmm. and photographs and things that we already know about. And so that's part of the discussion, I think, and part of the power of art, what memories it can bring back and what topics and subjects and personal experiences it can bring back. During the war, there are a number of instances where people were creating artwork. I already mentioned Samuel Bach, who was creating artwork as a child living in the ghetto. But there are other instances where they found drawings on walls of barracks and hiding places and things like that, as well as, you know, works on paper and other mediums. You know, wherever there's a need for people to create, they've done so. So we do have work in our collection that was created just after the war. And we have people that are creating work now. Bill Pockner, who was creating work in the 1950s and 60s, which is fairly early because, of course, people weren't talking about the Holocaust yet. Survivors were scared to tell their stories, scared for people to see them as victims, or sometimes we hear about people being ashamed of what happened. So people weren't really talking about it at all. So when people like Bill Pockner or some of these other survivor artists were creating these artworks so early, I think it must have been, you know, much more raw and certainly much more personal than something created 70 years later. But there are still survivors who are creating artwork, which is pretty amazing. Toby Fluick, who is another survivor, created her testimony in art through scenes. There's a scene where, you know, she shows her brother being arrested or another one where the hospital in her village was on fire. Mm. So the it is very much her testimony in artwork. And I don't think that works for everybody, 
But in her paintings, it really does work. They're small. They're intimate. You you know, as a viewer, you have to, I think, be up close to really look at it and get all of the pieces of that story. And then also people who are creating artwork who aren't survivors, yeah. but are somehow motivated or challenged to respond. Some have no connection. They're not Jewish. They don't have a family member, but they read something or they heard someone speak about it and they felt as an artist that they couldn't avoid the subject. I've heard that over and over and over again. How does your role as curator of exhibitions and collections fit in with those art exhibits? I receive lots and lots of proposals from artists who want to have exhibitions at our museum or who may want to donate works to our collection. So I'm kind of that first the first set of eyeballs on on the work. And then, of course, when we have an original exhibition of artwork, I'm usually the curator of that exhibition, doing the research, talking with the artist, interviewing the artist, and trying to make sure that we're telling the stories and showing what we need to show. That ends up being one of the best parts of my job. I love talking with artists and learning all I can from them because, you know, not very many people get that experience. I think it's pretty unique. And it's, it's been, I've been there a long time. I've been there for 17 years and it's, it's really been a highlight. What made you join the museum staff 17 years ago? I was almost fresh out of college. I had a art history degree. It turned out fantastic because I am a lover of history and obviously art. So I was really happy that the museum had both. Mm-hmm. I came there for that and stuck around for the people. (laughs) I started there at that point. I was the registrar, so I was the person that was cataloging and moving and helping to install the artwork and the exhibitions. You know, I went on to get more education and curator now. It's good work. In your 17 years, any exhibits or acquisitions you're particularly proud of? In 2005, and we've had a couple of subsequent exhibitions, we had an exhibition of work by William Pockner, who is, I would say, a beloved artist in the Tampa Bay area. He just died last year, unfortunately, but at a ripe old age of 102. Oh my. So, but he was one of the most remarkable people I have ever met. I always used to say whenever I talked to him that when I leave here, I'm going to be smarter just because I spend time with you because he always had important things to say and talk about. So that was definitely a highlight. His work is in some of the collections in the area museums at the Tampa Museum of Art, at the Museum of Fine Arts. He was an abstract expressionist during the 60s and later when he went blind in the 1980s and 90s, he started doing collage work in just black and whites because that's all he could really see. Mm. Uh, he, he told me, you know, he never really focused on trying to get people to buy his work and you know, he always joked that maybe that was a big mistake, but he he always wanted to create work that was for himself, that he he had some sort of reason for painting other than to sell it. But he started out as an illustrator in the 1940s after he came to the U.S. from Czechoslovakia. He's a Jewish artist, and the family he left behind was killed. So he didn't have his own Holocaust story, except for after the war ended and when he found out that his family was murdered, 
he abandoned his career as an illustrator. He was working for Collier's and Esquire magazines, and he abandoned that career to make work for himself. And while a lot of the people around here didn't really realize, and a lot of the collectors that he had in New York didn't realize, a lot of his work did have some aspect of it related to the loss of his family or the loss of his homeland during the war. So when we had the exhibition, it was, for, for our museum, it was much more abstract than some of the other exhibitions we had. And so it was a really great way, in my opinion, to use artwork about the Holocaust because it got people to think it wasn't derivative, it wasn't a scene. And he was really talking about beauty and how we view beauty because his work, he has one work called Landscape of the River Sola. It's this wonderful patchwork quilt kind of view from above of a landscape, very much in the abstract expressionist style. And everybody who saw it loved it, but they didn't realize that the River Sola is the river that runs next to Auschwitz. So he was making a statement about not only landscape and beauty, but also what his whole thing was, you know, what man has done to change the landscape and to destroy what is beautiful. I thought that that was a real excellent exhibition to get people to think outside what they already know. We had our regular visitors that came, and we also had a lot of his collectors and art lovers, and so many people were so surprised by it. They were surprised that these paintings that they've probably seen before in local galleries and other museums had had anything to do with this horrific event because mm -hmm. they were so colorful. People think, oh, Holocaust, black and white. Right, right. They're highly colorized canvases. And until he spoke about it or until we spoke about it, you know, they're just abstract paintings to them, nothing that might have meaning to their themselves or their own lives. And people were, I think, really interested because it was a new discussion, mm -hmm. and a new dialogue. And, and you know, there not all of his work was like that. Some of it was more literal. Some of it was he did a whole series of trains because he used to love trains as a child. And then, of course, trains during the Holocaust were used to bring people to their death. So he had a focus on, you know, the destruction of trains. And again, what we as people because we all have that capacity for evil in us, you know, have done with, with things that were, you know, maybe marvels at the time they were created. So it was just a great way to allow people to see the power of art beyond an illustration or beyond a pretty picture. There's a quote by someone who said, there can be no poetry after Auschwitz which of course we can all understand. And, and in poetry, he meant creativity, beauty, some sort of beauty to come out of the Holocaust. And to some extent that might be true, but I think that in artwork about the Holocaust, it can't just be a repainted scene from a documentary photo. It has to be personal. It has to be something that is meaningful for the artist and also has to, to reach something inside the viewers in order to be successful. It's, it's really difficult. We get, we get a lot of proposals and a lot of people, a lot of artists we have to turn down because it's, it's one of those things that we want to make sure that we are showing work that is transformative, that is something that offers a new way of looking at and remembering the Holocaust. 
What I just think is so interesting about the dynamic of this specific museum mm -hmm. is that it, it's not necessarily that you would find it in the mission of honoring those who were impacted by the Holocaust, but it is a very powerful notion of honoring mm -hmm. that you're not just showing the frozen time of mm -hmm. this. You're also saying to me with the art, and this is how the story continues. This is the narrative. This is you connected to that past. Absolutely. And, and we recognize that most of our visitors do go through the first floor before they visit the second floor. So they have that context. I guess the question I want to ask, we know St. Petersburg is an arts community. The Florida Holocaust Museum is in St. Petersburg mm -hmm. because a St. Petersburg business person wanted to do something mm -hmm. and, and move forward. But having a Holocaust Museum in St. Petersburg, that, that in a way that's sort of unexpected, isn't it? It's absolutely unexpected. It just so happens that Walter Lobenberg, you know, he's a resident here and he's also a Holocaust survivor. And so I think it was important for him because he wanted to find a way to memorialize certainly his family and memorialize the Jews of Europe as a survivor. But St. Petersburg is centrally located when you think about a map of the state of Florida. And we really do serve the entire state. We're doing teacher education all over. Mm. We were in Broward County. We've done things up in Tallahassee and Jacksonville. We've traveled exhibitions throughout the state, which is, you know, why our name is the Florida Holocaust Museum. We're really serving mm -hmm. the entire state. And we partner with organizations throughout the country, not only museums, but other educational organizations and internationally as well. I've been talking to Erin Blankenship, who is the curator of exhibitions and collections at the Florida Holocaust Museum in St. Petersburg. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.